It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Wednesday morning, the 20th of uh, July. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. The Minister for Health, as you know, or may remember, met with local politicians on the 13th of June gone by. At that meeting, Stephen Donnelly told uh, the local TDs and the senators who attended that the HSE was planning to close the emergency department in Our Lady's Hospital in Navan in a fortnight's time. Speaking uh, to Dr. Jerry McCarthy, uh, the HS lead on emergency care on this programme yesterday, it seems to me that there was little in the way of communication between uh, the Minister and indeed the HSE in recent times. Uh, But we do know that there has been a flurry of meetings uh, and a number of meetings that took place with government TDs in the locality in the run-up to that meeting that took place on the 13th of June. And Darren O'Rourke of Sinn Féin is on the line with us this morning. And you want to know why it was that the Minister was meeting with the government TDs when he hadn't met with the opposition TDs, despite having meetings planned that were cancelled and cancelled on a number of occasions before that meeting ultimately took place on the 13th of June. I, I do, Michael, and, and thanks for for the opportunity to discuss this. These are um, it's information that was released to my colleague David Cullinan, um, who put in the open question to the minister's office, asking what meetings he had done um, relating to uh, the developments at Navan Hospital. As much to know about, you know, which HSE officials he was meeting. Um, you know, was he meeting with RCSI group? Was he meeting with the Ireland East Hospital group? Uh, was he meeting with, with HSE management more more generally at a central level? And was he meeting with the Department of Health in relation to, to this? Um, what we got in response was new information uh, f- for me anyway. Uh, I would say for, for other opposition deputies as well in, in County Mead, um, and I think it's information that puts the, the meeting that we did have on the 13th of June into a whole new light. Mm. Um, what, we, what we received was information that uh, in around the November period, when we had a meeting cancelled ourselves um, at short notice, we were due to have a meeting with the minister, um, all, 
all our Octus members in, in County Mead. We had the meeting cancelled at short notice, but in fact, the meeting went ahead, but it went ahead just for for uh, government Fianna Fáil and Fianna, Fáil, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael representatives in the county. Um, and there was a number of meetings in around that time um, on the 17th of November, mm. on the 8th of December, on the 20th of January. And it really does beg the question. So this is the, meet- the, the minister meeting with Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, Oireachtas members in County Mead. Um, it begs the question, um, first of all, why opposition weren't included. Um, it's you know that that's bad practice in my in my opinion. But more importantly, what was discussed at these meetings? Um, um, you know, w- w- was there updates in relation to what was uh, happening or going to happen in Navan? Uh, surely they would have been discussing the alternative options, um, that the prospect of investing in a, and and enhancing services at Navan, how much that was going to cost, what it might look like. Um, I don't know. What, if any of that was discussed, um, it would strike me as in, quite incredible if it wasn't discussed. Mm. And then but you, you to get to the meeting, point on the not? 13th of June, yeah. where... I mean, I, I'm not sure wh- wh- why there's anything sinister about uh, government uh, representatives, uh, government TDs or government senators meeting with a government minister. Uh, in the first instance and in the second instance you knew that they were meeting anyway and you knew that they were having meetings specifically uh, about the emergency department in Navan because uh, if I'm not mistaken Johnny Girk was invited mistakenly invited to one of those meetings no that no no that's not the case Michael just to be clear um, but wasn't Johnny Girk on LMFM saying there was a meeting taking place uh, and then uh, it seemed that there wasn't a meeting taking place at least not with opposition TDs that it was only for government party TDs no that that was that was the 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 13th of June meeting no, that was no, the no, no, all encompassing no, no. meeting that involved HSE officials that involved senior HSE management department of health the minister and all representatives. So that's the that's the that's the the meeting that we all thought we were going to mm. on the seventeenth of November. That was subsequently cancelled on mm. a number of uh, on on one more occasion for us. Jerry McEntee, I think, has said that he he had four meetings cancelled. Um, in my opinion, from our perspective, we had two meetings cancelled on the seventeenth of of November, and then on the twenty third of of May, it was subsequently rescheduled for for the thirteenth of June. In around February time, we, as opposition representatives, were contacted seeking information, what questions we would like answered, um, and we submitted those before the eleventh of February. And we were expecting, uh, because the minister had indicated that a, a meeting would follow shortly after. So, so my point is this, Michael, and government officials and government representatives are entitled to operate their their business in whatever way they do, but they did not disclose these meetings. There was no indication when we all met on the 13th of June. I am of the firm opinion, the firm recollection that there was no indication that there was a flurry of meetings happening internally to the government parties. Not only that, um, there was clear indication on the uh, on uh, the uh, to the opposite that the, the the questions that the 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 government representatives in the county from Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael 
that they came, in my opinion, on with one arm as long as the, the other. On the 20th of May, though, Johnny Girk said he received an email inviting him to a, a meeting, and then he was told that it was a mistake. Yeah, so, but, so just to be clear uh, on and, uh, and then it was clarified that that was a, a meeting for government party representatives. No, I, I, I don't know that that to be the case, Michael, um, because there was no there was no meeting for government party representatives um, on on the twentieth of, of of May. If you if if you look at the information that was presented to to there was a meeting on the twentieth of January, and then there was a meeting on the twenty fifth of of May. But that was with Minister Don, Donnelly and his own advisor. So there was no meeting in around that time. My point is, and I think it's correct, that the meeting that was subsequently scheduled for the thirteenth of June was due to take place in around that time, around the twenty third of of May. But it was it, it was cancelled at, at at short notice, so it didn't it didn't happen. Um, I think the you know the the like the questions I have here, Michael, uh, really, and I feel you know I am frustrated in relation to this. I feel mm-hmm. like we're we're on a merry-go-round here in relation to Navin Hospital, as if we I feel like we don't have full mm-hmm. disclosure from Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael in our county. I feel like they have extra information that the rest of us don't have, and they're not disclosing it. Um, I think they should come on the public record and states clearly what was discussed at those meetings. Well, I, do, um, I, I think I have a recollection, and I could be wrong because uh, I've uh, been trying to remember, but I, I'm sure Thomas Byrne was saying that he had held meetings with uh, the Minister uh, and uh, that the Minister had met with uh, government party representatives. Uh, but what meetings have you had with uh, the Minister since the 13th of June? Uh, I, I don't think uh, there's been much in the way of communication between the Minister and the HSC uh, since uh, all of this blew up and the minister was talking at the Sinn Féin private members motion uh, which I think was on the 21st of June saying that it was important that meaningful negotiations discussions took place with everybody with the government party TDs the opposition TDs uh, the community the clinicians uh, the doctors in Drogheda the doctors in Navan the HSE uh, Leeds uh, in Dublin uh, and so on but I, I'm not sure that anything has happened or has there been any any interaction between any of those people no, none. And, and and look, this is this is some of my frustration, Michael, because one of the points, right, I said, in fairness, government will do business the way they want it and, and they will hold those meetings. I think if there has been acknowledgement um, of, of internal meetings within government, um, I, I haven't been aware of them. I certainly wasn't aware of them on the 13th of, of June and I'm not aware of, of what exactly happened on them. But I think an important point to also mention in relation to the information that we have received is the the scant engagement that the minister has had with the Department of Health officials and with the HSE. He's done more meetings with, with uh, Helen McIntyre and Thomas Bourne and Damien English and Shane Castles than he has done with uh, his own senior officials and with management at Drogheda and Navin uh, at the HSE at a senior level. And, and, and to me, it's a picture of a, a minister who is not on top of his brief, who is not in control of the situation. Um, and, you know, if I was at those meetings that weren't afforded to me or Johnny Gurk or Padder Tobin, I would have been saying very clearly to the minister that he needs to get a grip on the situation and that he needs to spell out how he will invest and protect service in Navin Hospital and to make and to address any safety concerns that are there. And, and and we don't seem to have any of that happened and it doesn't look like it's happening at the minute either. Mm. Uh, 
What, what, what is happening then? Because uh, it's not safe to send people to Navin. Yeah, and... and uh, I mean, you accept that, don't you? No, I, I accept that there is a, a risk associated, that there is a concern in relation to about five patients a, a day. And I, I also, uh, I, so I accept that. I'm, 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 five patients I, a day? Is this, uh, I thought you were saying that it was more than that, that would end up going to Drogheda. Yeah, if, if the HSE, so, so, so to be clear in relation to it, the, the HSE have a concern, Jerry McIntyre has a concern for about five patients a day who attend at Navin. They believe that there isn't the adequate resources or supports or, or services there for them. Their solution is to, um, in my opinion, and not just my opinion, and in, in the opinion of clinicians at Drahad and Navin, to uh, close the, the A&E at Navin, introduce a 24-7 MAU will, that would have the practical effect of moving not just that five patients, but also an additional 40 or 45 patients to, uh, and sending them to, to Drogheda, to a Drogheda hospital that is not um, a, in a position to, to cater for them. Okay, so but do you accept that as an unnecessary risk to five patients a day, at least five patients a day, or 10% of the people who would ordinarily be seen in the emergency department of our, our ladies? Oh, I, I do, and I, I, I never, I never uh, denied that for a second. What, 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 what my consistent and, and the, challenge, and, and that some of the five patients every day who go to the emergency department could die unnecessarily. My consistent challenge, Michael, in relation to but all of this. Do you accept that? Do you? Uh, um, well, I'm, I'm, I'm not clinically qualified, Michael, so I... I no, but you've been told it, that I, by those who are, so uh, it's a simple enough question. You don't need to be clinically qualified to say whether you accept what those who are clinically qualified have told you or not. So there's a risk. So the, the risk, the, 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 there is, there is a, a risk for those patients presenting at, 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 at Navin Hospital. There will be a risk for them if they present at at uh, Drada Hospital, should the HSE get their way, um, we, we might speculate that that risk will actually be greater. Um, and that's certainly the, the proposition that's been put forward by those clinicians mm. to say that the HSE's uh, proposals are fanciful, um, that Drada is not in a position to take those. And actually what you will have, and I've, I, you know, I've, I've outlined this, uh, this, this perspective mm. very clearly, what you will have is very ill patients presenting in uh, Drogheda um, in significant numbers, far significant numbers, and they're presenting now, and they will be caught on trolleys, and you will have really acutely ill patients uh, missed because there will be other people there that will be less uh, acutely ill, but that will be caught up in the system. And that is the, okay. the, the clear concern that has been expressed by clinicians okay. in well, I, I Drogheda. Think, I, I think the important date uh, in this uh, uh, in terms of trying to establish uh, what has been done to progress this since uh, both sides, that meaning the, the minister and the HSE, both sides uh, came to loggerheads, is the 21st of June, uh, which was when uh, Sinn Féin's private member's motion was put to the doll and the minister said uh, that meaningful discussions have to take place between everybody. Uh, it, it was clear, speaking to Dr. Jerry McCarthy yesterday, that he wasn't involved in any discussions. It's clear, speaking to you, that you haven't been involved in any discussions since the 13th of June. But we'll put a call in now uh, to the HSE and to the Minister for Health asking what discussions have taken place between the HSE and the Minister for Health or his officials since the 21st of June. And I 
I, I think, Michael, look, it's, it's really important that um, one question is answered here and it needs to be on the table. And that is what investment it will take in Navin Hospital to address those safety concerns, acknowledged safety concerns, and to continue to provide well, a safe well, and, nothing's happened. and essential uh, service. Well, well nothing's happened unless discussions have happened and something has been agreed. I, I, I think that's probably uh, a logical conclusion. So uh, you'd assume, given the urgency uh, of the situation, given that people are at risk and given that there's the risk of unnecessary death and given that the Minister said that it was paramount that discussions took place to find a resolution on the 21st of June, that he, he said that uh, in the uh, chamber of the doll that something would have happened since then. Uh, there doesn't uh, appear to be any evidence of that at this stage uh, and I say that based on the conversation I had with uh, Dr Jeremy McCarthy yesterday and the one I'm having with you today. We'll put that call in now to the HSE and uh, to the Minister to try and uh, establish if anything else has happened. Uh, it would be far uh, better, I, I think, if the Minister uh, spoke to LMFM uh, not just tomorrow or next week, but on a, a fairly regular basis or had someone uh, impart this information on his behalf. But unfortunately, since all of uh, this uh, became a, an issue of public concern, uh, the minister hasn't been available to LMFM or the Mead Chronicle because the minister is too busy to speak to the local media, which means, in my mind, uh, that he's too busy to speak directly to the people who listen to LMFM uh, and the people who read the Meath Chronicle. Uh, in other words, uh, the people who are served by the hospital. I'm not sure what you think about that. No, uh, like I think it is, it, it's, it's uh, uh, completely unacceptable, Michael. Um, and I think you know, if you like going back to that point, government can do their business in, in the in the way that that they want. Um, but it, it's, it sticks out a mile that the, the minister is, is not engaging extensively uh, with uh, anyone other than his party colleagues and government colleagues in, in, in Mead. He's not engaging with the HSE, the Department of Health. Um, you, you heard from, from the, the, the doctor yesterday. Um, I, I think, you know, we've had a policy of drift at Navin Hospital um, for, for far too long, uh, over a decade at this stage, and it can't be allowed to continue. And, 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 and I, I agree, Michael, uh, there are acknowledged risks at, at um at Navin Hospital. There are acknowledged risks at uh, Drogheda Hospital, and I believe greater risk if the HSE proceed with their plan. So the minister must intervene to address those risks. And I believe the way to do that is to engage extensively, including uh, by explaining to the to the public in, mm. in, in County Meath um, how they will invest and enhance services at Navin Hospital to address those risks. All right, well, if an unnecessary death is reported in Navin, you'd expect uh, the Minister to be here uh, to comment on it or explain it. Uh, uh, and uh, I think uh, given the fact that we're told by the most senior clinicians in this country that that risk exists, that the Minister should be here uh, to speak to people uh, about what he is doing to prevent it. Uh, that's not the case again today uh, and there is this open invitation to the Minister um, but uh, perhaps that will change in time. Darren, uh, we leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. That's uh, Darren O'Rourke Fang TD for Me East. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. There's no money in the bank. Uh, you've heard that said uh, before. Uh, but uh, of course, uh, this time round, it doesn't mean that somebody doesn't have money in the bank. It means that the bank doesn't have 
any money. Not what you and I would call money anyway. Uh, this is uh, the news uh, that AIB is withdrawing cash services from uh, another 70 branches. That means that out of 170 AIB branches uh, across the country, just 71 will have cash or ATM or check services because they're withdrawing all of these services because people don't need them, apparently, because of uh, digital usage, which is soaring. uh, And uh, having things like money has become unsustainable for the bank. Let's speak uh, to Seamus Boland, who's the CEO with Irish Rural Link. Good morning to Seamus, and thanks for joining us, as always, on the programme this morning. What do you make of this? Hello, Seamus. No. It seems that uh, the line has dropped out on us, uh, unfortunately. Uh, It's uh, probably no surprise uh, in some uh, senses uh, because uh, I suppose a lot of us haven't been into a bank or used or handled cash in a long time. A lot of people are using their phones or or their cards or their cards on their phones uh, uh, as a way of uh, transacting and uh, paying for items and so on. Uh, We have the line established uh, or re-established with uh, Seamus Boland. Thanks for coming back to us, uh, Seamus. What do you make of this decision from AIB? Ah, look, disappointment is my is is really a mild. It's just it's a horrific decision. Uh, it's a horrific decision because it completely ignores the fact that so many businesses uh, and local people and older people depend largely on cash. And, uh, and now we have a situation where we have a state-owned bank uh, can't even take your cash. I mean, it's it's really. A, a horrific decision. It's causing all sorts of uh, anguish and anxiety among people, uh, and we're getting lots of calls about it. So really, mm. it's it's a it's a bad decision right now at this time. Okay, there'll be many places left without anywhere to get cash, and if you should pay for something in cash, even if you have your card on your phone or your card in your pocket, you won't be able to get cash to pay for whatever it is you're looking for. That's uh, kind of difficult to contend with, isn't it? It's extremely difficult. Uh, it, look, it, it really, we're not, that, you know, I know everybody argues we're going digital, digitalization, etc., but we're not there yet, long way from it. And again, look at the small rural businesses, particularly, who, you know, deal delivering services, they deal with cash, they, they accept cash, they take cash, you know, all those mm. pensioners pay cash that way, and indeed many people do. Uh, now you, you have a situation for the small business, that they, they have no bank to bring the cash cash too it, it's look it's a strange world we're living in but it is not a way to go forward and it is far too soon for this kind of incredibly revolutionary transition mm. i mean undoubtedly as you say it'll uh, pose problems for older people uh, who haven't uh, the digital means of uh, Uh, using money uh, or or for businesses, uh, especially uh, businesses who have a a lot of cash on the premises and like to use the night bank and that sort of thing, uh, they'll feel very vulnerable. Uh, But what what about anybody else? I mean, if you want to buy an ice cream and you don't have cash, uh, what, what are you going to do? Yeah, it, it, it's it, like it, we're, as I said, we are nowhere near the place where they think we are. And look, it's for profit they're doing it. And it's such a tragedy that a bank that's effectively beholden to the state can make these the kind of decisions. But let's be clear people uh, do need cash uh, still. Businesses are trading in cash. Ordinary people, children are, are handing out cash to get, as you said, the ice cream. Uh, and now we, we have a situation where effectively the bank 
one of the few that's left in the country, by the way, has decided to effectively go cashless. Mm. That is extraordinary in, in this day and age. We are being treated like mugs when it comes to the banking system anyway, and this is another uh, example of it. Okay, uh, is it good news for the post offices? It's marginally good news for the post offices. I noticed the, this famous um, PR phrase, we're going to deepen our relationship with uh, the post offices, whatever that means. Uh, post offices are, and I'm an Irish or linker, one of their biggest supporters, are not banks. You know, yes, they provide a service, and it's great that banks, you can large money and take out money and stuff like that. But, I mean, it's not really the answer. Um, a lot of post offices have closed over the years, so there's not a post office in every area anyway. Uh, but this is not the step forward in terms of banking. Uh, so, yes, it's good news in a sense, but they will have to look at where their premises are that, you know, and how they operate and the, what sort of confidentiality they'll have to maintain. So it's not mm. as easy for the post offices either. OK. Will it be convenient for people? Because the bank, AIB, that is, in this case, is saying uh, that you can withdraw up to 1500 from your post office from your bank account. Yeah, that that will be convenient to some degree, but again, it's 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 a question of you know you go into the post office. Sometimes it's in a shop. Sometimes it's mm. and you need confidentiality as well. And you know, I would imagine there's a fair amount of extra training required as well. This is not as simple as it, it sounds at first. Mm. To me, it's a nice, handy way of. Um, putting a good spin on what is, in my opinion, an awful story. Well, I, I take it it's a, a way of uh, cutting back on uh, the number of people they employ and letting people go or de- redeploying them or, or whatever, but will the post office uh, network have the staff uh, to deal with this business uh, and will the post offices be available to businesses uh, because AIB is saying the businesses will be able to lodge up to €50,000 with the post office if they have a prior arrangement uh, but I suppose I'm thinking about pubs and restaurants uh, who would have a, a lot of cash on the premises later at, at night uh, will they be able to go down to the post office and lodge that money every night or will they have to I, keep I, it on I, premises? I, this is my whole point. I, this is why the exploration of the phrase deepen our relationship with the post office. What does that mean? Does it mean that post offices will get extra security if all this money is being launched or lodged? Uh, does it mean that there will be specifically trained personnel? Will post offices have to take on uh, banking people with banking experience? Uh, also, you know, if they're storing money overnight, you know, there are facilities that mm. need to be looked at there. So, you know, it's this is like I would love to know have the AIB talked to the post office uh, about how this is going to be managed and when and all about and what sort of agreement have they got. Mm. But um, I, I think there's a lot of questions to be asked okay. here. Uh, as you say, um, the government has put a, a lot of money into AIB, uh, $64 billion into the banks. Uh, I think 24 went into AIB or something along those lines. Uh, the minister says he can't intervene. Uh, would you like the minister to call AIB in and have a, a chat with them? As far as I'm concerned, uh, if, if, like one thing ministers can do is they can intervene. Like they did intervene big time when the banking crisis uh, hit about 10 or years ago. Remember, banking, they were all over. Then they were having late night meetings, etc. So they can intervene. And as far as I'm concerned, uh, the minister is still the major shareholder in AIB. Uh, and the idea that he can say nothing at all 
is extraordinary because, as I said, if there was a major crisis in banking, he would he would intervene. This is a crisis in rural areas, and I think a conversation and an intervention is now called for. Okay, well, we were talking about banks and ice cream. The idea of a bank not having any money kind of reminds me of an ice cream parlour not having ice cream. But well, <laughs> I don't know if you can get ice cream on your phone, Seamus. But <laughs> I, 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 I said to someone this morning, uh, I've now decided to empty all my trouser pockets with cash because obviously cash is the worst thing you can yeah. have. You, mm. Nobody wants it anymore. So okay. it's, uh, yeah, it, 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 is, it is the greatest joke, you know, a bank without cash is. It really is yeah. the joke of the century. But there you are. These are the times we live in, apparently. All right. Thanks, Seamus. Thank you very much, as always, for joining us on the programme today. Seamus Boland is uh, the CEO of Irish Rural Link. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, minimum alcohol pricing is the solution to heavy drinking. At least that's what we've been told. Uh, but a study by KWP Alcovision, which was published in uh, the British Medical Journal, suggests it really hasn't done anything to curb consumption among the heaviest and most vulnerable drinkers in Scotland, at least. This is following a survey of 30,000 adults. The adults uh, wrote up diaries uh, over a, a period of time uh, and overall uh, there was a, an alcohol uh, drop in alcohol consumption of just over 6% but when it came to the heaviest and most vulnerable drinkers uh, there was little or no impact. Women uh, did drink less uh, but the heaviest of drinkers, the men who drank uh, most uh, we're drinking even more again since the introduction of minimum unit pricing, it seems. Uh, let's speak now to Sheena Horgan, who's uh, the CEO of Drink Aware. Very good morning to you, Sheena, and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, this comes as a bit of a surprise, doesn't it? Um, do you know, yes and no. I think one of the problems with minimum unit pricing when it was being talked about and the national conversation that we had, both in terms of public discourse and media discourse, was that it was almost being seen as or positioned as this silver bullet for heavy consumption. And at the end of the day, it's not. It is a single measure which is needed amongst the whole suite of measures in order to tackle kind of some of the issues that we have. And I, I, I with regards to heavy drinking and our negative relationship with alcohol, but I think kind of almost even bigger than that, we, we need to have a broader conversation, not just about pricing, but about education, about information, about awareness and all of these things. And I know what we find at DrinkAware because we do an awful lot of research and we have a national survey that looks mm. at behaviour and attitude, is that the data is complex. It's not straightforward and mm. it's very nuanced. And you might find one set of data, as we have with regards to the Scottish experience of MUP, that says it works well, and another set of data that said it, says it doesn't. So it is very complex. Mm. But I think one of the positives, or two positives that I, I should highlight that come out from this, is that while it does say it doesn't impact on the heaviest, the top 5% yeah. of heaviest drinkers, mm. it did have an impact on heavy drinking. No, it did actually have an impact. Yeah, that's really important. Uh, well, it, yeah. did, it did have an impact on the heaviest of drinkers and they drank they drank more well yeah but that's I, I suppose my point is that what they found was that there was a 6.2% drop in consumption amongst heavy drinkers but the heaviest of those yes they drank more but if we look at the heavy drinking overall and we look at the effect of that you know that they are the ones who are causing harm to themselves but also to their families and to their communities 
So any drop mm. in consumption at all has got to be seen as a, as a positive. Well, it was the intention to have women who aren't heavy drinkers, who, who are less heavy drinkers, at least uh, as it's phrased here, drink less. Yeah. That, that was hardly the intention, was it? I, I know, I, I agree with you. And this is why I think we did a lot of media coverage indeed on your own show about MUP when it was first talked about. And we said, you know, its purpose, its stated purpose was to impact on the heaviest of drinkers. Mm. And that was very much, it was, it was a very kind of singular focus. And to so, deter um, young people, but... Well, uh, the thing is, it, it's MUP and the research doesn't say that it would necessarily deter young people. And this is where the mixed messaging, I think, came out. Now, it doesn't mean to say that it mm. can't in addition, do that. Okay. But it's, its stated purpose was very much around heaviest drinkers, which is why this research is very important if we're looking at it saying, well, it kind of did in one hand and didn't on another. Okay, well, the, this study anyway found that younger men uh, were drinking no more or no less. Uh, it, it didn't have any impact. Uh, and the same with people in deprived areas. Yep. Yeah, and, and it's, again, it's, I suppose, in order to address our consumption and the heavier drinkers, and indeed all consumption above, over and above the lowest weekly guidelines, we need to take a multifaceted approach. These measures are good, but along with an awful lot of other measures. And what we'll know from our survey, and we do this every year, we'll look at the behaviours and attitudes of the adult drinking population. And there's about a third of the adult drinking population who state that they want to change their drinking behaviour. So really what we need to be doing is how can we support that? How can we empower them to change their drinking behaviour? And price certainly can be one motivator, but there's a lot of other interventions that we can utilise. And I I think we need to use the full suite of them. And it's why we will always, at Drink Aware, come back to, you know, information and education Mm. and awareness. We need to leverage that an awful lot more than we are doing. Okay, Is price effective uh, or is it effective uh, with people who aren't worried about the price? Well, no, I mean, that's, and again, it was one of the things that we would have stated and was coming through in the messaging around MUP is that it wouldn't impact on everyone. And certainly those who aren't price sensitive, that it wouldn't. People may cut down a wee bit more, but maybe not substantially. So this was specifically around the heaviest ones. But if you want to address alcohol consumption in general, we need to look at what the low-risk weekly guidelines are. We need to empower ourselves with that information and we need to then apply it. And I think it's it's a disconnect between the intentions that people have and the behaviour. And we need to close that gap and we can close that gap with good information and good national scale information. So MUP is one measure within the Public Health Alcohol Act. Public Health Alcohol Act has several measures which are all very important environmental measures but we also need to look at a community level, a family level, and also within schools. I mean, mm. as you mentioned there, the underage drinking, that trajectory is one that is worrying. And alcohol has no place in childhood. How can we address that? How can we address underage drinking? Mm. And so we need to do more in that space as well. OK, well, maybe we should look at, at countries where it's far cheaper to buy alcohol, uh, because we're one of, uh, if not the most expensive uh, country in Europe for alcohol, and we have all of these problems. And you have uh, countries uh, where... It's it's dirt cheap in comparison. You don't have problems, not to the same extent. I know. And, and, you know, this is something that comes up time and time again. And it's, as I said at the, the outset, you know, the data on alcohol and the, the nuances and the complexity of it is very, very deep. And it's very difficult to compare us to another country, I think, because we have a different culture. We have a different mindset. So in many regards, people are drinking less over the last few years and increasingly so that's definitely a trend 
But when people are drinking, there's an awful lot more binge drinking going on. And that is far more problematic and far more harmful. So we really need to consider that. So other countries may have cheaper alcohol. They may not. They may consume more than we do on a daily or weekly basis. But the level of binge drinking that we have is a serious problem that we do need to turn the tide on. Okay, well, it's food for thought uh, for people who are drinking too much. uh, And indeed, this study, food for thought for policymakers uh, as well, uh, I think, uh, Sheena. Thank you. I agree. Thank you very much uh, indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Sheena Horgan, CEO of DrinkAware. Michael Reed on LMFM. More price increases announced yesterday. Flow Gas saying uh, that gas will rise by 24.1% and electricity by 9.8%. A gas bill going up by around €30, electricity going up by 13.39. No great surprise in that because uh, I think all of the energy providers are increasing prices and uh, I think more increases are probably expected, uh, but that doesn't uh, come uh, as any relief uh, to people who are already finding it uh, difficult to make ends meet with uh, the winter looming. Difficult months ahead, the Taoiseach has said. Let's speak to Tricia Kylty, Head of Social Justice and Policy with St. Vincent de Paul. Good morning to you, Tricia, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Uh, I suppose when you hear about increases like this, it really is a case of adding to the existing woes that people already have. Good morning, Michael. Yeah, that's right. I suppose this is not a welcome announcement, but it is, isn't is unexpected. I suppose we are expecting more suppliers to follow suit and increase prices. So for Vincent de Paul, who are supporting people who are struggling to make ends meet, we are bracing for, for a difficult winter. Um, and it's so important, you know, that the budget delivers for people that they can have that extra support there and that's to get going, them through winter time. Uh, I suppose that's going to become all the more obvious uh, when we hear from the European Commission later today talking about emergency measures uh, because of a shortage of gas, uh, blackouts, uh, and uh, rationing probably uh, inevitable uh, at this stage going into the winter uh, across Europe. Whether we're in that situation where there's shortages or blackouts or rationing uh, is one thing, but prices undoubtedly are going to soar even further. That's right. And I suppose it's really important that for people who are struggling to pay their bills, you know that there is support there. Um, And we would always say to someone if they are worried about their ability to pay their bill to get in touch with their supplier because there is support plans available for people there and there are um, options. But really the reality is given the price increases that we've already seen come through and the price increases that are expected, we really need to see strong government intervention to protect people, particularly people on the lowest incomes Mm. who are already making those very difficult choices between heat and food. And I suppose you could say that this is the can before the storm or be forgiven for having the impression that that is uh, the case and that seems to be the government's logic in not holding an emergency budget and waiting until... uh, the normal October budget, which they brought forward, obviously, to September, and that they'll be able to help people going into the winter. Uh, But uh, I see in the Irish Times this week that already a lot of people are in trouble, uh, that in Vincent de Paul, uh, your calls are up more than 20% on the same period last year. That's right, yes. It's been a very busy year for our volunteers, a very difficult year for the people that we're supporting. And um, up until the end of June, we'd taken... Uh, over 80,000 requests for help. And I suppose now at the moment, our volunteers are very busy helping families with back to school costs. A lot of the schools have already requested um, 
payment for books and things like that. So there's a lot of worry and pressure out there on parents. And I suppose the additional €100 on the back-to-school clothing and footwear allowance is really welcome. That is a huge relief for many families. But more importantly, it's so important that we're investing in education that makes it genuinely free, so it benefits all children. And that's another key measure that we're looking for in terms of budget 2023. Mm. But, you know, it has been a very difficult year. People are struggling. It's not just energy, it's food, uh, it's rent. And and as I said there, it's it's back to school costs as well. So it's on multiple fronts for people. Okay, and uh, what is it that has people in the situation where they're struggling with something uh, as um, easy to predict as back to school costs. I mean, when uh, the children go on holidays, you know they're going to come back in September. Is it that people haven't made provision for this or that they just haven't been able to make provision for it because the costs have increased to such a degree? Yeah, so, so, you know, we have obviously the legacy of COVID where people maybe are out of work for a long period of time. They may have used savings. Now we're seeing price increases. Families are seeing it. You know, if you have a very low income and you have a small budget, you're really seeing it in your food budget, uh, the extra cost of your weekly shopping. Uh, it's all those pressure points. People may have gotten a big bill. And then the reality is for back-to-school costs are extortionate really for, for many families so for a secondary school child it can cost up to €1,200 Euro to, to put a child in first year and the back to school clothing and footwear allowance is €380 Euro this year €85 Euro, should I say mm. so there's a massive gap there so even uh, in normal times those costs are very very difficult for people on low incomes to make um, and to meet as well Okay but it's not that people aren't planning for it it's just that they haven't got the wherewithal to plan for it I suppose it's just the amount of pressure that people are on and and people do, you know, the big. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Pressure points for families that we support is back to school. Um, for the, After Christmas ends, it's preparing, you know, putting away a bit of money every week to prepare for the back to school time. And then Christmas comes after they've made those payments as well. So there's a kind of two key pressure points parents do prepare but the reality is the costs are so high yeah. uh, because we don't have free school books like other countries many parents have to um, pay voluntary contributions so-called voluntary contributions which puts enormous pressure on families where other countries wouldn't have such a system so there is big differences there and that's why we want to see an investment in free school books and investing in schools uh, so that they don't have to ask parents for voluntary contributions or they don't have to mm. fundraise. So it's really about properly funding our school system as well. Okay. Um, do you 
understand it or um, can you understand it uh, when you see some of the big concerts that are on and the price of uh, the tickets or how uh, all of the restaurants are, are full uh, and uh, you can't get a, a seat or people are driving around in brand new cars or whatever it is uh, that are these obvious signs of wealth in the country when St Vincent de Paul has had 80,000 calls up to the end of June uh, and some of the people that are calling you are asking you to help them uh, to buy food. Yeah, it is a stark contrast in terms of kind of the the difference in terms of people's experience. And that was the same during the pandemic. So people who had um, more... uh, um, income in the first place were less likely to lose their jobs. They were more likely to build up savings and those on low incomes are already in debt. They're already cutting back and they may have lost income during the pandemic. So now you have a situation where the economy is booming on, on one hand but then there's so many people struggling out there. So we, there is a real risk now that we're going to see a growth in inequality, a growth in poverty on less the government make the right choices in the budget, providing support to people on low income, people on, on uh, middle incomes who are at risk of falling into poverty and investing in good quality public services. That's the mm. kind of package of supports we need to ensure that we don't see a more unequal society as we come through the cost of living crisis. And what do people tell you when they come to you and tell, it, tell you that they just can't uh, afford to buy enough food uh, for the week? I think you're saying that the average food basket was €60 Euro, and that's gone up to €80. Euro. Uh, if somebody was ticking along uh, and paying €60 Euro a, a week for their food uh, but didn't have anything to spare, uh, there's a big difference there in, in the cost. Uh, that €20 Euro, uh, is a, a huge challenge. Uh, and uh, is it that they're €20 Euro short and is that what they need from you or what is it that they're saying to you? So the reality is, so people, you know, that we would be assisting, they would carefully be budgeting, you know, they'd know exactly how much they'd have for their weekly shop. And, you know, last year they would have um, budgeted 60 euro. That would have gotten them a decent basket of food. Um, and then now it's costing them 80 euro. So the reality is the shopping basket gets smaller. They're taking home less food. There's less food in the house. And one in three calls to SCP relates to food poverty. Um, and that's why people get in touch with SCP. The other thing is that it's the one area of um, their family budgets that they have control over. So if a big bill comes through the door or the rent has to be paid, food is what gets cut back on. And for parents, a lot of the time, it's sacrificing their own needs to protect their children from the negative impacts of this. So they may be skipping meals themselves uh, to ensure that their children can eat. And the other big pressure point at the moment is for families who relied on school meals uh, during term time, that's gone now. So, you know, that is another meal that families have to cater for during the summer months out of their own budget, which can cause extra pressure as well. Mm. So, you know, that that's the reality. Food poverty affects one in 10 people in Ireland. Um, and it's a, it's, a, it's a growing issue, unfortunately. It's really dreadful, isn't it? And uh, if one of those big bills comes uh, through your letterbox, uh, Tricia, um, if it's for the electricity or the gas uh, and you get into that situation uh, of that terrible choice of eat or heat uh, and uh, is it that sometimes people don't pay the big bill uh, when they come to St Vincent de Paul looking for help with energy costs uh, is it that they have a, a bill that they haven't paid or are they in arrears and have failed to pay uh, on a number of occasions 
So it, it, it'll depend really, I suppose, you know, when you have all those different, if you are trying to deal with multiple bills coming in, some are put on the long finger, families will prioritise what's most important and that usually is rent because you want to keep a, a house over uh, over your family's head um, and then the food gets cut. The big bill may be put on the long finger. They may have arrears built up during COVID um, or people have just got, because the price increases are so massive, you know, really big bill shocks and just no capacity to, to repay them um, at, the, at those prices. So that's when they would get in touch with SDP. Mm. And then we're also supporting people on prepay meters and they're really seeing it as well. So during winter, we would have had calls from people who said last year, you know, their 20, 30 euro top up mm. would have gotten them, you know, five, six days of usage. Now it was only three or two, two or three days. So the reality was they were running out of credit much quicker and as a result, we're, we're in the cold and the dark. So okay. People really see it in, in the prepay meters. Okay, I, I know you're calling for a 15 euro increase in fuel allowance and that be extended to 32 weeks. Uh, not everybody uh, uh, qualifies for the fuel allowance, of course. And uh, I take it uh, that there's going to be a lot of people who are going to be in a, a lot of trouble, finding it difficult uh, uh, to get by uh, as we go into the winter. Given what you said about uh, the food basket and how that's uh, increased on average by €20 euro a week, uh, because you're calling for an increase in welfare payments by €20 euro a week, so if that covered the increase in the cost of food, you'd still have the problem with meeting the price of everything else, wouldn't you? Yeah, so the, so the, the €20 euro, uh, increase in in. Uh, social welfare payments would allow people to meet the rising cost of living um, and then fuel allowance accounting for those energy costs. And we also want to see the fuel allowance extended to more people that, that need it because, as you say, it is very means-tested. Not everybody that who's struggling gets it. So we want to see that broadened out to include people in receipt of the working family payment. These are low-income families who are working um, and struggling. So extending that payment would give those families that extra security, that extra support during winter, um, and it would make a massive difference as well. And I think, again, it's also about investing in services, investing in free education, investing in affordable childcare, and investing in social and affordable housing is going to be so important as well as we... They deal with the structural causes that, that cause this cost of living. Yeah, well. yeah there's, there's, there's a long, long, long list, isn't there, Tricia? There's no doubt uh, of problems and possible solutions. Uh, we'll uh, certainly have a, a lot of problems after the budget. Hopefully, we'll have some of those solutions as well. Uh, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning, as always. Uh, that's uh, Tricia Kylty, who's uh, the head of social justice and policy with uh, the Society of St. Vincent de Paul. Uh, I just want to mention a message that came to us uh, yesterday. Uh, we were speaking uh, with uh, Joanna Byrne in uh, Drawdish and Fane Councillor uh, about uh, the walkout of uh, the councillors from the Louth County Council meeting uh, and uh, indeed uh, the problem uh, about a rainbow crossing uh, that uh, she was very disappointed about and then the rainbow letters had uh, to be included in the Pride Marches. Uh, we had a uh, WhatsApp message from Peter James Nugent who is uh, the LGBTQI support manager for Loud and Meath and uh, Peter James uh, said uh, that uh, the situation is unacceptable as false hopes and dismissal of even the subject in the chamber. He says this rainbow crossing is a temporary fixture to draw which would never 
be replaced by pedestrian crossings. Uh, it would never replace them. Uh, this rainbow crossing would go parallel to a crossing and would represent more than you might think uh, to young people and to adults in the LGBTIQ community. He, he says he's set up a, a petition and uh, sent it to all of uh, the Pride Committee teams and community to sign uh, as he's part of a, a lot of Pride teams around the country. It's a disgrace, he says, uh, from Loud County Council and from the CEO, Joan Martin. The people of Drada are so supportive of uh, the Rainbow Crossing that just over 200 messages of support came through to him uh, the day before yesterday. That was uh, before the interview uh, with uh, Joanna on the programme yesterday. And uh, indeed, I know that there's been a lot of coverage of uh, that particular issue, uh, including on LMFM News. But I I did want to read uh, that message to you. And thank you indeed uh, for getting in touch with us. Uh, somebody else uh, in touch with us looking for their dog. Uh, they're offering a reward of €200. Euro. It uh, is, I've missed it now, uh, from Carrick Macross. Uh, Coco is missing, has a, a slit in his tongue. Small white dog with a blue collar. Uh, if uh, you do come across it, let us know at the radio station. We put you in touch with uh, that caller. Now, uh, we've uh, some messages then that have come to us uh, on uh, the text machine. Uh, Tony in County Loud says, Regard your, regarding your piece on alcohol pricing, there was a television piece done the other evening in which the owner of uh, the nearest off-licence across the border in Jonesboro was simply laughing at us that this measure has sent enormous business his way. He openly declared, long may it last. I'm surprised that Dundalk TDs and elsewhere are not coming under pressure to reverse uh, this directive, which only had the effect of putting more money in the tills of some of uh, the supermarkets, not even to the benefit of uh, the state, uh, says Tony. Thanks, uh, Tony. I I, I know that Peter Fitzpatrick uh, has been raising it as an issue, uh, if that's of any use to you. Um, But... uh, haven't really heard uh, much from the other TDs, but I'm sure uh, they'll uh, put that right after your text this morning. Margaret says, I-, I thought we lived in a democratic country where we have freedom to choose. So why is AIB being allowed to decide how people do their business with them? They wouldn't be in business today if the taxpayer hadn't bailed them out. And this is the way they treat us. I use cash. I don't and won't use online banking to suit the banks. I won't put my details out there for the world to see. It's not safe, she says. The government needs to act and act on it now. Thank you, Margaret, as always, for your message to the programme. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, County Meath uh, certainly is in uh, the national spotlight uh, this week uh, with refugees uh, from Ukraine being housed or accommodated at least in tents, 16 to 1 tent in Gormanston Army Camp. Let's uh, speak uh, to the Cahirlach of Meath County Council, Nick Killian. A very good morning to you, Nick, and thank you indeed morning, uh, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Uh, this is far from ideal, I think everybody would agree. No, it's, it's, it's not an ideal situation. And, and first of all, can I just say on behalf of the people of County Mead, we very much welcome these people to Gormanston uh, Camp. And I'm sure that they will be extremely well looked after over there. But we mustn't forget that we've been doing this in County Mead already down in Navan, where we've been catering for about 50 people uh, on average when they come in uh, down in our civil defence headquarters in Navan. And it's a similar setup to what's in Gormanston, except that the, the, the tents that they've set up in Navan are actually inside. So we've been catering Mead County Council through the civil defence and the support we get locally have been catering for 40 to 50 people per week over the last since it started. So we've already experienced in Mead of that. But going back to Gormanston, looking at the television pictures, um, it's it 
it's not the the uh, most ideal situation, but again, listening to um, a person being interviewed on the radio this morning who who brought people here, uh, an Irish bus driver was stating that uh, this is happening not just in, in Ireland, but it's also happening in Poland and right across Europe at the moment where all of the various countries are under serious pressure. Okay, and tell me about what's happening in Navin, if you would, Nick. Uh, uh, that's well, Our civil defence people in Navin yeah. have, in our new headquarters, we're very fortunate to have a brand new building down there. Mm. And they've set up um, three three. Tense. Yeah. And it's normally for families. Okay. You know, there'll be three or four families sharing, or maybe even five. And I visited it And there you said 40 to, 50, 40 to 50 people a, a week. Uh, and would it be. On average. And would they be moved on in a week? Uh, they're, moved, they're moved on right. within the week, yeah. yeah. Okay. I mean, we, they, they've been fortunate in that they've moved on. And I have to give great credit to our own staff and Mead County Council, but particularly to the Civil Defence, because that's a voluntary organisation and they're depending on their volunteers. And the day I was there, um, one of the lads, Shane, he was coming off a kind of a night shift. He was after doing 12 hours and he was just finishing up breakfast for the refugees that were there. And I met someone for myself and I talked to them and um, they were very happy to be there. And yeah. they, they, you know, they, they felt they got a very good welcome and that they were well looked after. Very good. I, I wasn't aware. I wasn't aware of that. That's excellent. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, uh, obviously uh, says a, a lot about uh, the uh, spirit of uh, the people who are, are providing that uh, yeah. and that it's working successful. Uh, you, you, you seem to be more concerned about the setup in Gormanston. Is that because of uh, the sixteen well, beds in a tent? Well, I, yeah, and I, I've heard that rebutted this morning again on radio uh, that there's only eight beds to a tent. Um, no, I, I don't know. I haven't been in Gormanston. Uh, I, I've uh, sent in a request to visit Gormanston as Carheerlock of the County uh, just to see what the setup is. I'm waiting on word back on that. But I think we also have to look at our own county. There are, you know, we, we have buildings, and, and I preface my remark by saying, of course, I'm not talking for any of these uh, organisations, and I know they're private organisations. But we have Galgan Park in, in uh, near Navan. We have Franciscan College up the road from Gormanston which has um, 450 beds that they have there. And I know it's used as a sports camp, but I'm just saying there's opportunities even within our own county to kind of provide a more permanent type uh, situation. Obviously, uh, Dalgan Park is probably an older building and probably would need work done to it. But I'm sure maybe they're on the government's... um, uh, list of places to visit and to, to, but I'm just saying, even within me, then I'm sure if we look around the country, there are probably similar buildings like Dalgan and like the Franciscan mm. College or Gormanston Park, as it's now called. Mm. Yeah, I suppose uh, the concern is uh, manifold, really. Uh, one, you've um, got the situation uh, where already we're over capacity. Uh, there's talk then of setting up another welcome centre uh, uh, and you'd only assume that that would be uh, another hotel, uh, that it's far from ideal to have people in hotels, that the people who are in hotels as it stands anyway are going to have to move out of there because uh, those contracts are ending with uh, government and the hotels and causing other problems. And then they're saying that around 1,400 people are arriving here from Ukraine every day and there's no sign of that changing for the foreseeable future. 
And according to I heard the Taoiseach in a remark from, from where he is at the moment in Japan saying that we could have another 33,000 people here before the end of the year coming in from Ukraine as well as other people who are coming in I know that visas are being introduced to probably stem the flow uh, of people coming from uh, other uh, countries you know Syria and places like that but from our perspective here um, I suppose the people coming in are probably the most important now that they're well looked after and I'm sure being on an army camp we've a great pe- we've great people in our army and they will be well looked after uh, there I know it's the responsibility of IPAS and the Irish Red Cross but I'm sure our army people will make them feel very welcome mm. and it's as, as you said Michael quite rightly where do they go from here yeah I don't have any answers, but um, I'm sure the government has. I mean, the photographs on the television the other night over in City yeah. West, mm. people sleeping on the floor, that certainly is not good. No. And similar, you know, we were probably lucky to have Dublin Airport. I know people said it wasn't the right place to have them, but we were probably lucky that Dublin Airport, the old Dublin Airport building, was available last week because God knows where they would have gone. Yeah, and so, and you spent a, a lot of time working on housing with the council, and you know as well as anyone uh, the challenges that there were before this crisis. Uh, and to bring in another 43,000 people as it stands, uh, and to see that head towards... 100,000 people towards the end of the year. Uh, you're talking about a, an impossible situation, aren't you? Well, it, well, it seems impossible from here, and but we're going to have to have very quick answers because something else, w- within a month, by the end of August, where student accommodation has been used at the present time, the universities mm. and the colleges will be looking for their... Um, bedrooms back for the students coming in. Mm. So where are all those people going to go to who are already here? So I think we have a crisis on our hands in relation to it and we can't underestimate um, what it's going to, to cost, obviously, as well. It's going to cost a huge amount of money to try and find places. Um, I don't know what's happening with all of the people that have given in their names and said they would take in people. There seems to be bottlenecks. Um, so we probably need more staff to be yeah. brought in to work with the government agencies that are out there. Seems and to be brick walls, never work. mind. Seems to be brick walls, never mind bottlenecks. Whatever is going well, on there, uh, two thousand people have uh, been uh, allocated a space. It seems. And as you know, <laughs> I've been passionate about housing in the past. Mm. You know, I still have people coming in looking to be housed. Um, you know, so people are going on our own housing list. That's not decreasing either. So there's a parallel situation there. But dealing with what Garmanstown is, as I said, I just hope the people that arrived find peace there. And mm. I suppose that's important too when we look at the television and see the bombs and the craters in the apartment blocks where they've left. And I, I met uh, at a function in down in Balrat recently. Um, Balrat's um, soccer club down there had a function and I met people from Mariupol and... Um, they were in tears talking about their situation and it was heartbreaking just even listening to them. Mm-hmm. And the other situation is just so I just might say, I, I, when I was in the Civil Defence headquarters, I was talking to um, one of the men who was there and he's a lorry driver. 
Well, I said you should be able to get work. And um, Shane, the, the in charge down there for the civil defence, said no. Um, the actual Ukrainian lorries driver licence doesn't um, yeah, yeah. pass muster yeah. here. So there's yeah. the sort of things we yeah. can do because these people want to work. Yeah, that's well, the one thing that I've gathered, gathered from the people I've met. Well, uh, I don't think any of the driving licence. Uh, you know, you can't drive a, a car with a Ukrainian driving licence, let alone a, a truck. Um, there is a, a, another problem, I, I think. Um, um, in terms of Ukrainians working, uh, they do want to work, and I think there's no doubt uh, about that. Uh, but I think many of them are concerned about losing their medical cards and some of uh, the benefits uh, that they're receiving well, otherwise. That goes, that's yes, when you get into that situation, if you're working, uh, earning a certain amount, you will lose your benefits. So uh, it's a, that's a, that will be a balance and acting a decision make. make for for the Ukrainians themselves, but any that I have met, even in Ratoth, uh, they're actually working locally. They're working in in, in the various shops mm. around, and uh, they're delighted to have the work. But they're they're all living with families. The people that I've met in Ratoth, so uh, I'm sure that's the same around County Mead. Many of the families who came in early went to families. Mm, mm, absolutely. But, Again, let's give a good uh, Royal Mead welcome to those that have come into Garmanstown and hope they find the peace that they richly deserve. Okay, Nick, we leave it there for the moment. Thank you for joining us on the programme this morning. That's uh, Nick Killian, who's uh, the Cahirlic of Mead County Council. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, it seems as though there's going to be a very serious uh, accommodation crisis uh, for students as uh, the chair of Mead County Council, Nick Killian, was suggesting a few moments ago. Let's speak now to Hannah Brennan, who is uh, the vice president of uh, the Union of Students in Ireland, USI, for the BMW region. That's the Border Midlands and Western region. Good morning to you, Hannah, and thanks for joining us on the programme this morning. How difficult is it going to be or will it be impossible for some people to find somewhere to live? I'm not going to say it's impossible because I feel like that will put a lot of people off even trying. Um, But it will be incredibly difficult and I suppose we're having this conversation in July and come September when Leaving Cert results come out it's going to put even more pressure on students who are coming in to college for the first time. Um, Yeah, it it will be incredibly, incredibly difficult. Um, So we're hoping to bring about some change. This is a conversation that we've been having for years. It's not a new conversation. We've Mm. always had accommodation issues. Um, And every year, we have to say that it's the worst it's ever been because that's what's happening. It's always the worst it's ever been. Um, And the hope is this year that we can uh, change that, essentially. Um, Get some new accommodation, get some work done, get some legislation passed and hopefully make a change. Okay, well, part of the solution was uh, to be uh, that there would be on-campus accommodation uh, for students, uh, but a a lot of that is being cancelled. And um, the reason for that is the inflation. We're seeing the cost of living going up everywhere, uh, but inflation and construction is through the roof. And I was reading an article by Carl O'Brien during the week uh, and uh, he was reporting on 40 student accommodation projects which have been granted planning permission and they would be capable of delivering about 10,500 bed spaces. But the universities have said that they've put them on ice because of the increase in, in construction costs. Uh, and uh, the next sentence is just so ridiculous, it's hard not to laugh reading it. 
Uh, the universities are arguing that inflation would force colleges to charge rents of up to €16,000 a year. It's never been as bad as this, has it, Anna? No, and it's, ju- it's just so ridiculous. That's, it's prioritising... The, the, like, there's enough um, barriers to education as it is for students, never mind the fact that they can't find places to live. That's, that's a ridiculous amount of money, and students don't have that amount of money. Families don't have that amount of money. And, obvi- like, it's very clear that the universities aren't willing to shoulder any of that burden um, in relation to some of the bills. Because, realistically, it would, in the end, benefit the universities to have more accommodation because they would be able to accept more students. Whereas what they're facing now and what they will be facing this year is that students will be deferring or they'll be going abroad, especially with the fact that the Leave Insert is out so late this year. Um, And students will have accepted uh, offers from colleges and universities that aren't in Ireland because they'll be sure that they have a place and they're more likely to have somewhere to live. Yeah, and you don't have to go too far. Scotland, uh, I think, is uh, very popular with uh, a lot of people. The good part of that article, by the way, from uh, the Irish Times uh, that Carl O'Brien was reporting on was that the government is considering part funding some of uh, those student beds, the construction of them, uh, which I suppose time will realise whether that is what's going to happen uh, or not. Uh, but it seems that there's going to be a big push on promoting uh, the idea of rent a, a room because uh, that might be the only solution for people if uh, there are people out there who are willing to rent out a, a room in their house to students, uh, which uh, they can do uh, by charging rent, obviously, but 40, up to 14000 tax-free. Yeah, and I understand how that could be very beneficial. However, we need to make sure that there are there's sufficient legislation put in place to protect the students that are renting the rooms um, because as it stands, the legislation around digs, um, as it's known, is not up to par, really. Um, and we need to make sure that the correct protection is in place before we can go about endorsing that, if that makes sense. All right. What are your concerns? Um, is it with standards or deposits? or Just in general, um, I suppose, speaking from my own experience I've had friends that have had terrible um, issues that weren't allowed to say even keep food in the fridge Oh, right. Um, Mm. just people can be extremely stringent on what they're what they're comfortable with and that's completely understandable however I think before we can the USI is an organisation cannot endorse it without the correct protection because students have to be our priority. Yeah, it has to be your home. If you're going to pay rent, it has to be your home. Uh, and yeah, that would exactly. include having friends in, uh, having your friends around to socialise, having food in the fridge, whatever the case may be. OK, uh, it's uh, going to be a, a difficult year come September. Uh, and uh, I'm sure just to conclude, Hannah, you'd be hoping uh, that something would be done uh, in the interim, but time really is of the essence uh, because there's not much time. Yes, you're exactly right there. Um, and like, the accommodation crisis, as I said, it's not new, but it's probably since COVID, it's gotten worse because I think I feel a lot of students that may have been living, living at home during COVID were mm. mad to get out of the house, which is completely understandable. Course, yeah. mm. um, so there was probably an uptake after that in students moving out. And then, of course, this year with everything going on, um, as your last speaker was talking about, it's just the accommodation is it's in dire 
illustrates at the minute. Um, and we we love students living in like couch surfing, as the phrase is, and mm. in hostels. Yeah. But that again, that's not new. Mm. Um, and my long, best friend when I was in yeah. first year mm. was living in a hostel, yeah. and we didn't realise we didn't realise at the time the lack of accommodation was why we just thought we we didn't realise that that was mm. an issue. Yeah. Obviously, because mm. we were first year and we were all brand new into college, but no, it's. Yeah. It's been an issue, and unfortunately, yeah. it looks it's looking like it will definitely be an issue. Yeah, and people taking very long commutes. Uh, we've seen a lot of that already. No doubt, we'll be seeing a, a lot more of uh, all of uh, these things as we go into the autumn and people start in college, in particular. But uh, we leave it there for the moment, Hannah. Nice to talk to you, and thank you for speaking to us. That's Hannah thank Brennan, you. who is USI Vice President for the BMW region. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. To Fine Sharon Tolan, who's been telling me about uh, the hottest day of the year so far in Laytown. A, a horrific, violent um, uh, incident uh, at Laytown on Monday afternoon, four o'clock in the afternoon. Um, I believe it had kicked off a bit earlier between two individuals, and uh, when it had broken up, one of the individuals had gone off and, and gotten some family members um, and returned. And um, Awful scenes. I don't know if you've seen the the, the, mm, the video mm, yeah. uh, doing the rounds. Yeah. Hot, uh, hottest day of the year. Temperatures were certainly uh, very heated. Anyway. Well, you know, between heat and 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 alcohol, uh, mm. possibly. Um, but you know, men and women. These weren't youths. Um, so you know, I think that narrative across social media about um, out of control youths need, needs to be nipped in the bud. These weren't youths. Uh, these were adults, these were women and men, uh, punching, kicking and apparently stabbing, mm. uh, swinging axes um, and, and golf clubs um, is is the reports that I've received. I um, haven't had those confirmed by the Gardaí, uh, um, who I believe are investigating the incident. Um, but a violent, violent and vicious attack on the streets at four o'clock in the afternoon, or any time of the day, is, is, is obviously not appropriate, but... You know, it's it's a time of day when families would have been around for the beach. As you said, hottest day of the year. Uh, beaches are, are fabulous. There is great parking now down there all around the Laytown area. And an extra car park was, was opened up um, across the road. Uh, so families there visiting for the day and, and locals, obviously, you know, popping into Pats for an ice cream or, or to Gillness there for, for a bite to eat or a drink or whatever. And to, to witness this for children, for families, for, for people maybe even just popping down to the shop uh, to, to do their weekly groceries. Um, it was horrific. Mm. And, um, do you know, I kind of feel like y- you and I have the same conversation on an annual basis. Mm. Mm. Um, mm. Now, pre- previously, I suppose, I think, thinking back this morning, you know, over the years, there would have been more incidents. And, and perhaps in recent years, it seems to be one big incident on an annual basis. And then we get the resources. Um, d- deployed last year, we had those two youths who were innocently innocently walking on the beach. That's right. To take yeah. a break from their their leave and start studies. They were battered, um, battered, mm. yeah, viciously. Mm. And I know them so well. You mm. know, two lovely young lads from two great families, um, and just having a break from from their leave and start studies. And a, a group um, from outside the mm. area jumped on them and, and beat them. And Following that, I have to say that the response from the Gardaí was fantastic. Mm. It was second to none. We had a wonderful summer, <laughs> in, incident-free. Uh, the mounted unit, there were bike patrols, uh, there were Gardaí on foot. 
um, and people felt safe and really relaxed and enjoyed, which is exactly what people should be doing this time of the year. Well, um, <laughs> do they, they talk about you. chilling on the beach, don't they? You know, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This yeah. is quite the opposite. It's a safe space. Well, you know, that wasn't on the beach; that was on the main street. Yeah, you know, but, the, the incident on Monday. Yeah. But mm. you know, it, it is a big attraction for people. Uh, the beach here, and mm. we worked hard. It actually should be a blue flag beach. It's only because Mead County Council haven't applied for it that it's not. Um, the, the water quality is excellent. We now are car free, so it's it's safe and enjoyable for families to use. We have massive car parks throughout. Uh, we still do have incidents of mm. illegal parking. You get that everywhere, um, and, and we're working to address those. Um, ironically, people park in, in areas and, and have to walk further than mm. where they would if, if they parked in the free car park at school. But, yeah. you know... Would you be concerned about your safety? Knowledge. Would you be concerned about your safety in, in Laytown or Bellystown for that matter? I, I, I don't want to be an alarmist. Yeah. And certainly, no, I go out and I walk the streets all the time, mm. you know, and I'm, I'm out and about. I know, but it, it does... That incident uh, on Monday, yeah, yeah that, that, that really was... Uh, it, it was a shocker. You know, mm. now, and it's not June, a first. I, I mean, the area when, especially when the weather is good, yeah. the the area seems to attract all sorts of ruffians, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, at, at the at the beginning of the summer, every single year since I was elected, I've I've emailed the Gardaí, um, you know, and the, there's two items mm. that I uh, that I always outline, and that's the the finish up the the school leavers, the leave and search, because again we had incidents where hundreds arrived on trains and buses. Um, now, we we, we, <laughs> we did it a couple of years in a row where there were Gardaí on the train stations and uh, at the train station and at the bus stop and they turned them right back around and that seemed to put them off over the last couple of years, thankfully. Uh, and then the other thing is then the, the, the summer season mm. and, you know, visitors to the area. So I, I did that this year, as always, and I got a fantastic response very, very quickly. Um and that was yeah. that there would be a zero tolerance approach to both parking, illegal parking and public order issues. Okay. But, Michael, just to make the point, to have a zero tolerance approach, you have to have a presence. Yeah, you and do. There uh, is no presence at yeah. the moment. And you need to stamp it out when it happens, yeah. if it happens. And can I ask you about the Garda investigation that you mm. mentioned? Uh, mm. how, how did you hear about that? Uh, there hasn't been mention of this anywhere. Well, your, your your researcher confirmed. Well, absolutely. Because, I mean, yeah. apart apart from that. Yeah. Well, uh, well, reports from from locals as to what happened, and of course the video. Mm. But, but local people. Who I know, but it, but yeah. I, I mean, the guards were here yesterday, as they are every Tuesday. Uh, yeah, I never mentioned it. Never mentioned it. I know. Uh, there's been no press release. Uh, yeah. There's uh, been no information anywhere yeah. that, that yeah. I'm aware of. And that's why yeah. I was asking you, are you aware of Gardaí appealing for information to identify the people no. who were caught up in this? Uh, no. When we did contact, uh, as you say, uh, this mm. programme contacted the Gardaí about it. When we did contact the Gardaí, uh, all they had to say was that they were investigating an incident that happened on the Coast Road uh, mm. at 20 past four uh, on Monday and that no arrests have been made and investigations yeah. are ongoing. Uh, e- e- even after being approached, the Gardaí, aren't appealing for information. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I don't know. I can't answer that. Um, you know, maybe it's early days uh, and, and they want to gather enough information before they appeal. I don't know. Maybe I mean, they know who it is. Maybe they know well, who it is. Maybe they do. Yeah. Maybe they do, you, do. Do you know but, who it is? Are people talking about it locally saying uh, it was so-and-so and it was that gang or it was that family? Not a name. Not, right. not okay. names. No, no. But but, cer- but certainly there are indications as, as to, to who. Um, but it's, it's it's just um, 
you know, they need I to mean, get the, back together with the presence. Yeah, here, and, so. and, and, and it's very unusual that a stabbing takes place without yeah. a direct appeal from Gardaí uh, for information about a stabbing because it, it is a very serious offence. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, when, when two groups or two families are, are feuding, perhaps... Um, you know, and, and they're aware of the two families feuding and, and that's who is being injured. Perhaps it's a different approach to oh, an God. innocent bystander oh. being, being stabbed on the street. Oh, no, no. I mean, I know, but the offence the offense is still as serious. Uh, regar- Absolutely. Regardless of who you're stabbing, you can't stab. Surely we can't have people walking the streets if they're going around stabbing people, no. even, e- even if they're stabbing the devil, if you like. That's my point. Yeah. They, they still will investigate, but they perhaps already have the sufficient information without putting out an appeal. Mm, okay. You know? Yeah. But, uh, I mean, these are undoubtedly the questions that people are asking locally. They want to know how it happened, why it happened, uh, where were the Gardaí, and where are the Gardaí on it now? Um, yeah, they want, they, they, they want assurance. They actually don't give a damn who it was. To yeah, be perfectly as long as it doesn't happen again, or they're not no, caught up in the middle it of it. doesn't happen, and that it's not, you know, my neighbour, your neighbour... You know, like we, we we all love and we've all invested so much time here in our towns and villages, and we love to have visitors and we're very very mm. welcoming, but not those type of visitors. And all we're asking for is a very real presence, a community policing program. Now we were promised that we were promised a zero tolerance approach. I will say, um, over the past uh, number of weeks, there have been uh, units uh, driving around patrolling at night. Um, and spot checks at night. Uh, my own husband was stopped a, a couple mm. of times coming home from work and stuff like that. So that's great at yeah. night. But throughout the day, when we have busy, busy days yeah. like that, well, we need to have a, 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 a full-on community policing approach. Well, when, the, when the, the sun street. shines, the beach is the venue for the party. Uh, I mean, yeah. that's that's become apparent over the years. Uh, and it should not come as a, a surprise to anyone that when the sun shines, the venue for the party is the beach and people will come in their droves with drink and drugs. And it seems inevitable at this stage in yeah. the Laytown, Bettystown area that violence ensues. Yeah, well, there's, there's less coming to the beach with, 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 uh, with alcohol now because they can't drive their cars down onto it with the alcohol in the booth. So, um, you know, as, and as I said, that was on the street, on the main street, mm, up away I, from yeah, the beach. Yeah, so, yeah. But they were know, probably they were there visiting because... visiting the pubs or yeah, visiting, mm, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, but, but the draw, of course, yeah. is, is, is the beach. But, uh, you know, regardless of that, Michael, you know, the last census has shown we're a population now of almost 30,000 people here in Eastmead. Mm. Almost 30,000 people. Uh, the St Mary's Electoral District grew by 38% since the last census. Um, so our population alone, uh, coupled then with the type of area we are, which is seasonal and, and, and plenty of, of, of in an influx of, of visitors uh, throughout the summer months and at, at weekends, we need a greater presence. We need those mountain bikes. We were promised mountain mm. bikes throughout. Now, I have an email in. Um, I have a call in and uh, with the guards to, to find out what went wrong, where are the mountain bike patrols that we were promised would be deployed and uh, where they granted the mounted unit that they applied for mm. themselves. And I've also copied the Minister for Justice because I would like her office to raise this at the highest level to ensure that the resources are put in place 
to ensure protection here. Anyway. And we'll ask the Minister to comment uh, to LMFM on it uh, in the okay. coming days as well. We have to leave it there for the moment, though, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme. Thanks, today. Michael. Thank you. That's Sharon Tolan, Finnegale Councillor, and that's our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am on LMFM. Good- the Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.